ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew S Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. This episode, our guest is DJ, music producer, and Stone Slow Records founder, Peanut Butter Wolf. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. The program is about to begin. All right, welcome to episode six of The Conduits, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today, my guest is DJ, music producer, and Stone's Throw Records founder, Chris Manick, a.k.a. Peanut Butter Wolf. Through his label, Wolf has helped develop the careers of artists like Mad Lib, Ono, Jay Dilla, MF Doom, Aloe Black, Dame Funk, Mayor Hawthorne, and Anderson Pack, just to name a few. But long before Stone's Throw, Wolf and his good friend, the rapper Charisma, got signed to Hollywood Basic Records, and open shows for Digital Underground, House of Pain, and The Far Side before Charisma's untimely death in 1993. Deflated for a while, Wolf found therapy in beat making, started working with the legendary ultramagnetic MC's main man, Cool Keith, producing the song I Wanna Be a Star, and rubbing elbows with the who's who of the San Francisco hip hop scene, including Dan the Automator, future Beastie Boy DJ Mixmaster Mike, DJ Qbert, fellow San Jose transplant DJ Shadow, and Cutmaster Kurt. Having helmed Stone's Throw Records for coming on almost three decades now, I caught Wolf out on his porch, hanging with the hummingbirds, and talked about how he has built one of the most successful indie hip-hop labels ever, helps artists reach their goals, and stays excited about music, while also finding time to travel the world as a working DJ, helping create an in-house recording studio, as well as his all-vinyl gold line bar, with a continuous lineup of the most fanatical vinyl enthusiasts and DJs around. So sit back, relax, and listen to my conversation with the one and only Peanut Butter Wolf. All right, Peanut Butter Wolf, Chris Manick, welcome to The Conduit Man. Thanks for being here. Hey, hey, how you doing? Thanks, man. Well, so I just always like to start just because it's so interesting with musicians and artists, um, you know, kind of how they got to where they are and family life, home life growing up. And I know you grew up up in the, up in San Jose. Yeah. I wanted to just talk about family life. Did it play a part in your musical taste or did that come at school? All that kind of stuff. What did your mom and dad do? Yeah, yeah. No, I, um, I love talking about San Jose. <laughs> <laughs> my childhood so nice. <laughs> i could talk about that for an whole hour right on. i don't know if anyone wants to hear that much but um yeah i mean i for i just kind of started um yeah my parents you know had a record player in the house um when i was maybe three or four i think some of the early shows that i watched as a kid were like the sunny and Cher show i remember and the donnie oh, and marie yeah. show and hee-haw and I didn't care for Lawrence Welk so much, but um, the monkeys no. were really, I really was, I really enjoyed the monkeys. Yeah, and I mean, I, yeah, I think some of those early shows, um, you know, I learned about Soul Train maybe when I was like seven or eight, maybe a little later. Yeah. Um, my dad was in the army, so he, we, we kind of bounced around a lot and yeah, oh, I settled I in San Jose. Yeah. We, okay. So uh, first five or six years of my life, I was probably in like seven or eight different cities and states you know i was i was born oh, wow. in maryland 
Aberdeen, oh. Maryland, where um, Bismarcky lives. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I ended up settling in San Jose, and, you know, when, when disco got really big as a child, I was, I was really drawn to it. And yeah. I remember um, Saturday Night Fever, I, you know, I, I got the soundtrack, my mom got me it, and yeah. I just remember I, I, my friends, um, I lived on a block where it was like all girls. I was really like the only guy. All my all my friends were girls growing up, and they they all liked to dance. So, yep. Saturday Night Fever was you know, and, and even Grease and uh, the redo of Sgt. Pepper, and I I was noticing right. like Peter Frampton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I noticed like RSO Records, they those were all on that same label, and you know, I, I think that might have got me kind of interested in like how a label could have a certain sound and stuff you know sure sure and then ktel yeah, was big at the in those years too yeah i was learning about uh, compilation albums and yeah like there was disco comps and I, I would buy those and learn but i also my, my teacher in second grade he was really into funk and soul and he taught me a lot oh, wow. about music wow yeah that's so cool. yeah so he and i remember even in the song popcorn was kind of an electronic song uh -huh. where um, in those days, they would put on a movie, and there it would be like a silent movie, and then they would play a record behind it. So like they played that song, Popcorn, and it was really <laughs> that became my favorite song. And I learned about kind of electronic music through that. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. They did these. Uh, you went in silent movies with music. Where were they doing this? Where'd you see that? No, in, in my school. Yeah, oh, at, at school? the school they just had like a, it was probably like an eight millimeter or something. They didn't really have the budget for something that had sound and visual together, so gotcha. they would play like this trippy visual thing and and just play that record with it. Oh wow, that's. But wild. yeah, so yeah, so the, the the early years for me were really, and, and my parents were in the record of the month club also, so okay. you know that that was a thing where. You would see the ads. You could see it in old magazines. There'll be ads still, like that say, thirteen records for one penny. <laughs> right. So you can pick them all, and then by doing that, then you agree to be in this record of the month club for like two years or however long it is. And they send you. You, you get to choose what record you want, but they send you a new record, or maybe two or three. And so my parents would let me choose the records w with them. You know, and oh, I, cool. I'd be really excited opening the package, and yeah, man. But yeah, my parents were more into like show tunes and like um, rock and country a little bit, like kind of soft rock, I guess. Uh -huh. um, America. <laughs> like so John Denver and John, like. John Denver. Yeah, this is crazy. That... I found out I was teaching a lesson, uh, a John Denver song, and I was telling my mom that, and she goes, "You know, your your uh, John Denver went to high school with your uncle." I was oh like, wow! He was in school in Texas for a minute, and was in my uncle was like friends with John Denver when they were in <laughs> That's high weird. school in Texas or something. Isn't that crazy? Wow! I was like, I had no idea. Anyway, yeah, John Denver side story. <laughs> John Denver. Yeah, I mean, my my mom used to tell me that Buffy St. Marie went to college with her. She was friends with her. Oh. She was like kind of a folk singer. Right. A Native yeah. American. Native American folk singer, yeah. Um, she's still doing it. My buddy plays guitar with her. Really? Yeah. Oh, I got to tell my mom. It, touring. Yeah, she's she's still doing it. It still sounds good, too. That's crazy. Yeah. 
Wow, so you had so, all kinds of cool music going on at home and at school. There was all kinds of cool stuff happening. That Yeah, the record of the month thing, yeah. I mean, I I didn't like... Yeah, I guess I did as a kid. I liked the, the music my parents liked, but, you know, as yeah. a teenager. Then I really got into... Well, like I said, second grade, I learned about funk and soul music. And I guess <laughs> through right. just, yeah, through um, Saturday Night Fever kind of being big you know i learned about cool and the gang through that soundtrack exactly. and yeah the kgs and like yeah, a lot of other good stuff yeah man oh that's cool what were do you remember any of the records you got in record of the month club do you remember your top faves or anything sometimes there were like eight tracks and sometimes there were vinyl uh, just kind of ones i was mentioning like gordon lightfoot um there was the Living Newton John album. My dad would get like classical records. He would get like Beethoven's Fifth and yeah, stuff like that. Mozart. And my dad was really into Sinatra. Wasn't on Saturday Night Fever? Wasn't there? Didn't they have that that disco version of Beethoven's Fifth on there too? They you did. Both, you <laughs> yeah. had both versions. The real yeah, exactly. And the disco version. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Oh, that's cool. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Well, so. As you were kind of getting more and more into it, who became kind of your musical North Stars, as it were? What you kind of, what got you interested in yeah. pursuing music on your own, you know? It's really a year by year, but yeah, like yeah. The, when I was in second grade, it was like Heat Wave, you know, the Groove Line, I really liked that one. Oh, yeah. Boogie Nights and um, the Jacksons. Uh, but I, I, I would say fifth grade is where I really got into it, where I was buying records every week, every weekend. I, I, so during the week, I would save my lunch money. And this is a story a lot of people my age tell, but I would <laughs> save my lunch money. And on the weekend, I would go and buy as many 45s as I could afford. So 45s <laughs> were like a dollar each back then. Right. And so you get a dollar for lunch money every day. You starve yourself and then stay thin or whatever. Yep. Very unhealthy unhealthy way to yeah but but you got a stack of records so it's all but good. yeah yeah so on the weekend <laughs> totally and and sometimes i would get a 12 inch like i remember one of my first 12 inches was probably i'm ready by kano which is like a kind of a tallow disco okay but you know i like craft work um yeah there's a lot of that kind of stuff did that carry on? I know like every time I'd go on tour, I'd always take the per diem, just like stock up on food at the venue, you know, the free stuff they put out. Oh, and then buy and records take my per diem and go buy records, you know. We'd yeah, always... exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, stops. yeah, my life hasn't changed at all in that way. Like, <laughs> I was like at a record store yesterday and I, yeah, I dropped a lot of money um, yeah. and a lot of time. Right. But yeah, you would think, you know, you'd think we would have everything we need it by now but there's the want there's always is always something. yeah there's always that thing that you didn't know and about that's, that just keeps us going man there's always that one tune we are like dang how did i how, how did i not hear about this one already you know like it's just endless it's crazy yeah and so much stuff on spotify and everything now but you know right. and it's a lot easier to like cross-reference stuff but totally um but yeah, I found myself this morning like just peeling price tags off of the records I bought yesterday. You know that it's never changed. That's a crazy thing. Like I remember just growing up. Like obviously now with social media and Spotify and all these streaming things, you can you can pretty much if you hear somebody talking about something, you can go on and 
and Google it and find out about it instantly. But like when I was a kid, and I'm sure it was the same with you, like the only way you found out about cool music was like from the older dude up the block or whatever who yeah. knew about knew about this, and you'd have to like borrow his VHS tape with like live footage or whatever. It's changed yeah. so much now. It's just like all at our fingertips, you know. But it is, yeah, that's true about like knowing needing to know someone that's a few years older because I a lot of people I know who have who are younger who have older taste in music they they learn about it through their older brother or sister or their uncle yeah. my friend yesterday you know I was the guy I was record shopping with he he runs he basically um, is in charge of the library at my record bar which we oh, can okay. talk about later but yeah Definitely. But he's like in his late 20s, and he was saying um, Second Edition by PIL was his favorite song, or his favorite album in high school. Oh, yeah. And so he was in high school in the, you know, in the 2000s. Yeah. And that was my favorite when I was in high school in 1986. Oh, but it came out in 79, so I was just like, I guess that, that album just, yeah. But I was like, how did you learn about it? He's like, oh, my uncle, you know. And my uncle yeah. actually... He also was really into a lot of his funk and soul. He he saw James Brown in the '60s several times, and Ooh, yeah. he took me to um, Gil Scott Heron in the '90s. And wow! But yeah, he would make me tapes, and like it would be like all Aretha Franklin songs on one side, and all Otis Redding on the other. And yeah, I just fell in Dang. love with some of those artists. Oh man, what a blessing to have that person in your life. I'm so grateful yeah. for all. Still, I mean, every, obviously, I, we, we both surround ourselves with people who just love music like we do. So you're constantly yeah. just finding new stuff, man, constantly. Oh, yeah. Did you uh, did you ever see that PIL movie that they did a little while back? Dave from the Lions, the bass player, did some of the music for it. Oh, nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. man, his, uh, his buddy Tabbert directed it. It was pretty cool. Okay, yeah, we had a... We had an early screening for it at my house, actually, because no way. Uh, yeah, one of the um, one of the ladies who was, I think, maybe one of the directors or producers or something. Oh. She she lives up the street. And, oh, crazy. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, PIL was that was it for me. I mean, you know, but that was like kind of later because yeah, like my my background was disco and funk, and then I got into electronic music, and then the reggae and the new wave and post-punk and all that kind of came in my teenage years i guess yeah and punk as well yeah so much i was just talking to booty brown about that but it's that there was so much music new music coming out when we were in junior high and high school you know from new wave to punk rock to yeah dance hall to like all you know just all kinds of different stuff hip-hop obviously yeah but uh, man, just an influx of like, holy crap, what's this? You know, it was so hard to find it. Like reggae music, like yeah. I mean, there was this Prince Jammy record that I that I found. It was uh, an electronic computer. I forget the name of it, but it was like oh. from '85, and I I remember buying that when it came out. Um, but it was, I had such a thirst for like different types of reggae, and I, I could never find it in San Jose. But there was. Oh, yeah. There was one DJ that would play it on college radio, so you know, okay. having having college radio was just such a service, I guess, back then. Who was the cat who was who you were listening to on college radio up there? Do you remember? For the reggae, I don't remember it, but I I would record it and you know I would like write down songs. There was this one song called "Everybody Get Flat" that I was always looking for and I couldn't oh. find it for until years and years later. But you know there. 
But there was uh, the hip hop show was this guy Kevy Kev. Um, okay. It was every Sunday, and he was from New York, and he started. He was a student at Stanford University, and he was a rapper in this rap group called the Members Only Crew, and they all wear members only jackets. But <laughs> they were all Stanford students and okay. um, doing kind of New York-based hip hop in the Bay Area, and wow. and he, his show was like went on for 20 years I think from 85 oh, to like I think it, he's still on like off and on somehow nowadays wow. but oh, man. but yeah that guy was like a hero of mine as well and right. I remember the first time I was on his show you know like with charisma like that was you know that was kind of like a goal achieved I guess for us yeah I definitely want to talk to you about charisma because I know that's a huge part of your story and um yeah I just want was was he kind of like what were you doing before you you guys met pretty early on yeah you were friends before you started doing music together no I met him through music so I yeah I actually well to kind of to go back a little further like I started working with rappers in 1985 when I was 15 and Mm -hmm. I had a drum machine and I got two turntables and a mixer and they weren't 1200s you know they were like cheapies like i had a fisher and a panasonic and they they didn't have pitch control but i was able to scratch i had a mixer you know a radio shack mixer and i was tapping out beats and i was working with these two mcs separately and and then one of them joined the army and then i went away to college i went to long beach state for for one year so i came down here and um, yeah, I stopped working with that MC. He actually was dealing with depression, which I didn't even realize because he was like the class clown all the time, like always just one of the funniest guys you'd ever meet. And I found out years later that he committed suicide. So I was oh. really surprised by that. He was like in his 20s. Oh, man. But that was my first MC. His name was Miles. And he actually let me borrow a drum machine. He was the one that was always like, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. And I was always... I kind of had that, like, part of me thought it would happen, but then part of me was like, well, in San Jose, you know, you just hear all these things, like, people, like, telling you it's not going to happen, and um, I think, yeah, I just was kind of unsure of myself in those years, and, but, but with him, you know, he, he really had that confidence that, that I was desiring, I guess, to be a part of, and, and then, um, went to Long Beach for a year and then my dad said if you move back to San Jose I'll get you a car because I didn't have a car in Long Beach but just being out here being in being in Southern California they had K-Day and it was like 24-hour hip-hop like there's you know nothing like that and it's like when EPMD and Eric B and Rakim and Public Enemy all, all that stuff was just you know just like changing changing my world yeah um but yeah, I moved back to San Jose, and then I, I started DJing on the radio on KSJS. Um, okay. They had a show from midnight to 6 a.m. on the weekends, and it was all hip-hop. Oh, yeah. And so the the program director for the hip-hop show, she said, oh, um, let's make a record. And so it was like $1,500 to, to do 500 copies of a, a vinyl and we, we had this group Lyrical Prophecy that I was producing at the time mm-hmm. it was two MCs and 
we basically, yeah, this, this, and two producers, myself and this guy, DJ Raleem. So we put out a vinyl of that. We did 500 copies, but we didn't know anything about the industry, so we didn't master it. We didn't know that, we didn't even know what mastering was. <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't know about distribution, so we, we got 500 copies of this record, and like, what do we do with it? You know, it sounds like shit. I mean, so <laughs> sonically, it sounded horrible. Yeah. But now, I mean, at, at the, I mean, we were in this, you know, going to studios to record it and everything, but right. um, that sound is like that lo-fi sound that I always, like, kind of look for. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, when I'm buying records, like the rarest, like, weird sounding you know just sounds like unique and kind of right, has right. a charm to it um but by us having a record then all the mcs in san jose were like oh if we work with these guys we'll get a record too so that's yeah. how i met charisma long okay. story short oh man that's crazy they so saw charisma. you were doing stuff so they were like we got to check out we got to check out this guy yeah Let's they saw the records record. <laughs> yeah, they saw our record, and they also saw that we were on the radio. And wow. a guy from my high school, Kermit, he brought Charisma over my house. And Charisma was 16, and I was 20, so I was four years older than him. Right. But we were a group for four years. And oh, man. Yeah, that was like a, like a whirlwind. Yeah. So, yeah, talk to me about kind of like... I'm just like, I'm trying to give people a leg up who are trying to get into the things that all my guests are doing. So like, when mm -hmm. you guys met and realized you had a chemistry, how did you go about practicing your shows? What were some of your first shows? How did you kind yeah. of learn how to work with a crowd? Like that kind of stuff is just super interesting to, to people like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the time when I met Charisma, my idea was to have I, so Molly Mall in Control Volume One had come out a couple years earlier, but and Forty Five King, you know, both of those guys were producers that I looked up to, and they both had compilation albums with different MCs on them. Right. Jazzy J had one as well, but um, my idea was I'm going to do a, a producer album. I'm going to feature all different MCs. Yeah. And so Charisma was one of the ones that I that I found, and there was this. Uh, conscious hip-hop group called the Nubians of Truth Unit and I did some songs with them and you know there were a lot of different people but Charisma was like oh that's cool because it, it got to the point where it was hard for me to schedule time with everybody it was like like so Charisma he'd want to come over and I'd be like oh you can't because I have Peacemaker over today or I have you know this person or that person and so he was getting frustrated and he's like and this is cool, but I'm better than all those other MCs, and like you're eventually just gonna drop them all, and it's just gonna be me and you. Watch. And he was kind of joking, but kind of serious, and kind of like playing with my head a little. Yeah. But it is what ended up happening, you know. I I ended up like just really focusing on him and his talents, and yeah, um, That's yeah, awesome. we we found a manager and. He basically shopped our demo around, and we ended up getting signed to Hollywood Basics, which was right. Walt Disney's hip-hop right. imprint. How did you find a manager, Chris? Like, what did you guys, how did you guys go about that? Like, that's such a conundrum to a lot of people. I know. Like, I, I, he, he found us. I think okay. maybe, like, uh, 
us playing our stuff on because I had connections at different college radio stations. Yeah. Being in the scene, and you know, I got our stuff played, and I, I'm pretty sure that's how this manager found out about us, or maybe it was a live show. I, don't, I honestly don't remember, but um, yeah, we were doing a lot of local shows, yeah. and and our manager, he yeah, he had connections in the industry, and he actually also managed um, Mahershala Ali, the the oh, actor. Yeah. He's like a um, Oscar winning actor. Uh, trying to think of what films he's in. He's in a lot of films, yeah, my but name sounds familiar. I'd have to see a picture again. But um, yeah, no, it was a, it was, but yeah. So the, our manager, he like he got it to all the labels, or you know, he claimed to have. But the guys at Hollywood Basics heard it from the manager, but I guess they were playing it to. Digital Underground when they were on tour with them and they're like, "What do you think of this?" And the guys at Digital Underground really liked it. And wow, so, that's cool. so Money B and you know, I, I Humpty, all of them, rest in peace. Yeah. And so um, that's how we got signed was because the the band because Digital Underground liked it. And wow, that's a crazy cool backstory. And that's what I try to tell people though is that like it's important to get your stuff heard by industry people, but it's equally, if not more important, to find fans who are, who've already made it as right. as a musician doing the stuff that you're doing. It's a lot easier to like, maybe open, open a show for them, or, you know, if they, yeah. if they see your talent, maybe they'll do a track with you, or. Yep, get that cosign. And, those cosigns, uh, exactly. Man, that means everything. I mean, just, yeah. Getting people who believe in you spreading the word is, is huge. Totally. So that's kind of how it happened for us. And I guess uh, the president, the, our A&R guy's name was Casual T. And he had brought, and the president, he had brought um, Naughty by Nature to the president of, that, of Hollywood Basic. And he, he passed on them. Hmm. And then he brought Cypress Hill to them and he passed on them. And both of those groups went <laughs> platinum. <laughs> yeah. So when he brought us, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll sign this because, you know, you have that ear or whatever. And so we thought we were going to be the next ones to go platinum. You know, that's kind of what they were telling us. And yeah. they promised us a part in um, uh, that movie that Lauren Hill was in, and Whoopi oh, Goldberg. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, uh, Sister Act. Sister Act, yeah, we were supposed to be in Sister Act Part 2 or something. Classic, man. Good memory they got. My buddy was in that movie. He had a bit role, I think, in Sister Act 2, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sister Act 2 is what I, we were supposed to be in. Okay, classic. Yeah. And then we were supposed to have a song in this movie, South, South Central. But, you know, it was like all these promises and nothing really came of any of it. But they did take us to Europe, and, you know, we toured with... Um, this rapper High C, who had a hit at the time, and then mm. it was us, High C, and the Digital Underground guys. So yeah, wow. just to, to be like, you know, basically a teenager who never had a passport or never went anywhere, and to go, to be able to go to Europe to do shows, that, that just seemed impossible, like, right. you know, so. That's incredible. And how did how how did the relationship with Hollywood Basic go? Like, uh, 
first off, like, how did you, you guys had an attorney already looking over contracts for you? Like, how'd you line all that up and how did, uh, how did the relationship turn out? We had an attorney, um, but, you know, our manager kind of helped us through all that. We didn't know any of that stuff, but um, the relationship, our A&R, our relationship with our A&R was good, but it, it was, so before we got signed, we were going into a studio that was $15 an hour and we really liked what we were doing and who we were working with. We liked our engineer. Yeah. And then after we got signed, they're like, we want to put you in the studio. It was $75 an hour. And, and we kind of were hesitant on that because, I mean, all the hip-hop that we liked was kind of like real gritty and grimy anyways. But, yeah. I mean, I, I do understand, like, the benefits of going into like a, a better studio even even if you're using like an sb 1200 or whatever it'll still like you know make it sound fatter and stuff so sure. Sure. but what i noticed was instead of going to these fancier studios they would make us demo songs at our house and then if they didn't like them then they would ask for more songs before we could go in the studio you know and uh, so our studio time was always like it'd be months and months and we would we were just like we want to we want to record you know we want to do this and yeah um so that was a frustration and then we realized they kind of kept it from us but the president of the label had cancer his name was funk and klein and he he was from new york and he was a radio dj with chuck d before chuck d started public enemy i knew i knew that name from somewhere and he was a writer. He wrote for a lot of magazines, I think, like yeah. The Source and stuff. And so this guy was really connected. And when when he got cancer, um, basically everything kind of just went on pause. And eventually the, the label folded. Mm-hmm. But nobody told us any of this at the time. And we were just frustrated, you know, like, well, what's what's going on? Like, what, what, we want to record. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we eventually... They eventually, like, dropped us from the label, and then the label folded, like, you yeah. know, a few months after or something. But we did, We when we signed, you know, they have you sign a deal to end the relationship, and then they give you money. Yeah. So we saw, like, a lot of money that way. And, and you got to then, keep your master's, too, yeah? And then we got our master's, and then Charisma was killed, like, shortly after. And yeah, he was, yeah, he was like 20, so, yeah. I had a couple, two of my best childhood friends died in a car crash in high school. Wow. uh, That's just something that's so, like, I I almost wonder, like, would it, it it probably would have been worse if I had been older, because, you know, you're just so not used to dealing with stuff, at least I wasn't used to dealing with stuff like that yet. Yeah. But how did you deal with how did you deal with that, man? You had your buddy and your working partner in yeah. this group pass on so early. How did you get I know. We that? were supposed to go in the studio that day and I remember getting a, a message from him saying, Oh, I'm not gonna be able to make it, I gotta take care of some things and you know, he was he was shot in like broad daylight. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon and I remember getting the call from his mom and she was hysterical and um yeah, I was It was just an accident. I was just in shock. Uh, it was like a, it was a, 
carjacking kind of thing. So he was in East East Palo Alto, which was like really dangerous neighborhood, and he was driving, and he you know he always had like not necessarily nice cars, but he would have like kind of old kind of gangstery cars <laughs> that like had like nice rims and you know everything, and um, he was at a stop sign, and this guy on foot like went up to his car and like had a gun and said you know get out of the car and and he resisted and the guy killed him and he is with another guy too and then i guess the other guy um brought him to the hospital but it was already too late but um yeah it was like you said i mean being young and having that happen it's you know you just never would you just it's hard to to believe yeah, and it just, uh, you know, I can't imagine it would be easy to even think about music after that for a while. You know, I would, I would That's exactly what happened, yeah. I, I stopped. I didn't want to do music. I didn't want to do anything. I mean, I, I just needed to heal and just kind of just deal with it, you know. And it, it took months, but then eventually I realized, like, turning on my sampler and, and making beats and, you know, making tracks like that was what really kind of got me out of it it kind of it was my therapy for more than anything right i think for so many of us music is therapy i know you know one of the subjects i just like to touch on because it's something not many people talk about is just uh just the overabundance of ups and downs and dealing with depression with artists because it's just uh yeah it's you know Obviously, we all make music because we feel emotions pretty deeply, and you mm-hmm. know, it, it's just. Uh, but but creating music is our is our outlet and our kind. Of, you're right; it's our therapy to kind of get through and and uh, deal with these feelings. Yeah. Man. Well, I'd love to uh, talk to you just kind of about some of the early gigs you guys did i was reading online that you you and charisma did a bunch of crazy shows opening for like house of pain and nas and the far side and yeah. uh just going back to those happier times what was it like getting to open for some of these people and where were some of these shows Were you have any particular awesome memories of, of back then one doing opening slots yeah one of them was at the Longshoreman's hall i think it was called but i remember it was like um black sheep when Oh. Um, when their this or that song was like you know like basically like you couldn't escape that song anywhere and yeah yeah I just remember opening for them and people they were really like into what we were doing oh yeah and, yeah I could see that yeah because yeah stylistically it was like yeah it was a really good fit so I bet but um beyond that yeah the a lot of those shows there there was this thing called the gavin hip-hop convention oh. or the gavin actually i think it was just a, a college college radio convention but they had hip-hop kind of presence at it you know they would have hip-hop shows but hmm. this guy david paul he would put together these these bills and he had a magazine called the bomb hip-hop magazine okay. which was it was kind of it was more a newspaper format almost um you know not not many pictures it was like more reading but it was from the bay area and so he would do 
Bob Magazine presents shows, basically, and that's yeah, that's that's where a lot of those, that's where the Nas thing was, and um, House of Pain, yeah. But yeah, doing the show with House of Pain, I remember just like DJ Lethal. I think that was yeah. yeah, that was their DJ at the time. He would, he liked the stuff I was doing, and he he was he basically like. He was working on stuff and he's like man i really like your beats uh just send me a, a cassette tape of, of just nothing but drums and i'll uh, give you th- i'll give you a thousand bucks and i'm like oh that sounds like easy way to make a thousand bucks and yeah so i sent it to him and I, I don't even remember if he used them or not but you know just yeah just Ideas. having like yeah having people like that that were already like kind of you know doing doing th- good things or it was, it was right. It was cool to have. That is, man. That is. Dang. Well, so um, is there anything in particular that you remember that you learned um, that you still take with you about performing from Charisma in your days with Charisma? Did you guys, you know, I'm sure this was like one yeah. of your first forays where how yeah, did you guys hone your shows and what did you learn from him? Right. I mean, that was one thing is I, I noticed that a lot of people, they... Um, they would try to stay on stage as long as they could. And, and what we wanted to do was just give them like 15, 20 minutes. Cause also people didn't know our songs yet. So we just wanted to give them maybe five songs and just have them wanting more, you know? And, right. but it would be like, you know, our, our stuff, I guess at that time and hip hop in general, was really hype, like with Fushnikins and, you know, yeah. uh, Buster Rhymes or just like a lot of stuff where it was like a lot of energy, a lot of dancing. I remember we we would just it would be like a lot of high energy songs and then with a lot of jumping around and then we had this this break in the in our live show where we would just because charisma was all about drinking apple juice he didn't he never drank alcohol that's right um but he we had this thing called the apple juice break it was like a little intermission and we would just sit down and like just play the song and just like drink our, our apple juice and and people just thought just little stuff like that just to be a little like weird and like you know stand out from people but yeah, um but yeah charisma live like people really enjoyed it and yeah i remember like Mixmaster mike and cubert they they had like it was even before they they were the scratch pickles they they had a different i think they were the rocksteady djs but they opened for us one time and like their show was so great. I'm like, how, how are we going to follow that up? But you know, Charisma always had the energy and like, yeah, people really enjoyed what he was doing. Oh man. We just, right as you were talking about Charisma, there's a hummingbird kind of hovering behind you. Yeah. 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 So cool. (laughs) I thought you were going to say that there was one while you're indoors though, but yeah, I've been, yeah, the hummingbird is kind of distracting me, but it's yeah. There's a lot of a lot of nature here where I live. That's great, man. Well, so um, you said you you know after um, Charisma was shot, you you took some time away from music, um, and your drum machine and making beats kind of brought you back. And um, I read one of the first things you produced was a track for Cool Keith called "I Want to Be a Star." Oh Just yeah. Wanted, wanted to uh-huh. hear about how you first met up with Cool Keith, what it was like to work with him, how you guys, how your collaboration happened. Yeah, Cool Keith, um, you know, I was a major Ultramagnetic fan, like, 
a lot of people, a lot of my friends and I. Um, but yeah, Critical Beatdown, I mean, to this day is like up there. It was one yeah. of the most important hip hop records. Yeah, man. You don't hear much about it. Like, it's, you know, it's not, I don't know, people don't talk about it like they, they would talk about Nas Illmatic or, you know. Yeah some of those others but it, I like Illmatic but I like I like uh, I like that record better right that's what I'm saying like yeah Critical Beatdown was just a great one but incredible this guy Cutmaster Kurt who I knew from the Bay Area he was working with Keith and I don't remember I think I just approached him at a show and gave him a tape with my phone number on it and he listened to it and he called me and he's like yeah I really like this track like uh and I was living in San Jose at the time, and he's like, or no, I think San Francisco, but yeah, up in the Bay Area, and he said, we'll fly you down to LA, and we'll, we'll jump in the studio, and let's record it, and Dang. yeah, so I was like, I was like, well, let me hear it, do some of the lyrics over the phone right now, I want to hear it, like, you know, and he's like, don't worry about it, I got it under control, like, you know, <laughs> and so he's all, he's like, oh, you're afraid, you don't want to come, or something, and then I was like, no, and I, and I came down, and we got in the studio. It was Kurt's house, okay. And we get in there, and then he doesn't have anything written, and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I knew it. But he wrote it all out, and yeah, kind of just did it on the spot. And you know, Kurt, I mean, Kurt was doing all of his music at the time, so for me to kind of go in there and infiltrate it, like some producers would have been like really salty about that but Kurt was really gracious and like kind of just took me in you know wow. as like one of his own or whatever because we're both from the Bay Area and to hip hop and he, you know yeah. both DJed on college radio and both That's just great. like really big cool Keith fans so but yeah then I remember Automator was also working with Keith at the time on Dr. Octagon right um, and Automator was mixing and mastering a lot of my stuff so okay but he, yeah he was playing that stuff and but yeah the, the wanna be a star i remember we went to um so we, we recorded the song and then we um he didn't have a hotel for me i just stayed at his he had me stay at his apartment and yeah. slept on the couch or whatever and then um the next day like we went to kinko's and we started working on the artwork because you know, we didn't have any like graphic right. <laughs> production team or anything. It was just so I just remember Cool Keith. He had this magazine, Black Tail, and he cut out a, a picture of this girl's big ass, basically, and he <laughs> yeah. called it Funky Ass Records. Was the name of his label. <laughs> nice. But it was him and Tim Dog and me and Cutmaster Kurt. And wow. um, I remember like Keith. He cut it so crookedly. Like he just he wasn't like really a perfectionist and like. Tim Dog and I are like, what are you doing? You know, we were like, we got the scissors and like made it made it a much better cut, much <laughs> yeah. r much rounder ass because we had just had it all cut cut cut. Uh huh. Um, and then we went to Roscoe's and went to a club. I remember like when we went clubbing, like Keith had these business cards that said Keith Thornton and his phone number, and for occupation he said photographer. Because he didn't want anyone okay. to think he was a rapper, which huh. was weird to me. Because I feel like if you if you tell someone you're a rapper, you might like they might be more interested in you than if you're a photographer. But right, I don't know. But yeah, he would give everyone yeah, I'm Keith, I'm a photographer. 
<laughs> and in his apartment, he had like That's all crazy. these Polaroids of different people. Okay. So, yeah. All, all Polaroids he took, obviously. All Polaroids he took. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, he was really eccentric and like, yeah. We went grocery shopping and he was like, he wanted to buy some like clothing dye, but he didn't really say what it was for. And he's like, well, should I get the, the magenta or the, you know, the opaque, I don't know, turquoise or I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you're doing with this clothing dye, but I, I just remember I was like kind of soaking everything in that, you know, that he what was doing. What an amazing and, experience, man. He's yeah, like, it was because it, yeah. True, ex true totally. eccentric. I was just hanging, uh, I got to go see Angela Moore last night. And, oh, uh, yeah. Another incredible, uh, eccentric, amazing artist. And you're working with him, right, from Fishbone? Or? Uh, I have in the past, but um, they asked me to come down and spin records in between sets last night. Yeah. So that, was, that was fun. But, but he was amazing. Where was, it was that? Like, it was this little place in Topanga we have called Corazon. That's just like a little, probably okay. 70 yeah. people inside. But it's... Um, yeah. It's great, cool. good vibe, and they played their butts off. It was like the trumpet players, like. But was it like Fishbone or what was it? No, it's uh, uh, Doctor Mad Vibe and the Missing Links. It's Angelo's group. Oh, that cool. He has where he plays like organ and theremin, and then he's got like two other horn players. He plays sax too, and then two other horn players and full-on band. Yeah, it's crazy, really cool. It's like Zappa, real like crazy changes. Like one song had it was like ten minutes long. And they were just flipping between styles, like every eight bars. It was nuts. Nice. Totally impressive. But that's yeah, he's like an unsung hero as well. I mean, I remember. Totally. I remember Fishbone and Chili Peppers. I would always see them together in like '85. And, yep. And it would be like some shows Fishbone would headline, some the Peppers would headline, but they were kind of, kind of neck yeah. and neck as far yeah, as totally. influence and you know what they were doing. Absolutely, man. I saw a lot of those shows, too. So fun. Well, so um, I know you obviously did a, quite a bit of production work and DJing um, post uh, your career with Charisma. Talk to me about the idea to form a record label. The first time I, I think I met you, I came up with Break a Strut of San Francisco, and there was like an apartment up some stairs off to visit oh, wow. maybe. Is that yeah. what I have yeah, vague yeah, memories very of going good, up to good memory. Yeah, I was on Ellis <laughs> in between, no, in between Divisadero and Broderick, and it was right by right, the Justice right. League. So right. I'd walk to the Justice League. Justice League was kind of where all all the cool hip hop shows were happening at that time. Yeah. Um, that was we played there, and it was us and Quasimodo and you and maybe exactly and all kinds of people. There's and I think out there of it somewhere. I know that's a cool poster. Um, yeah, yeah Breakestra. I mean. I don't remember how I first heard you guys stuff. I think, oh, you know what? I was I was at a show and I saw you guys live and, and I approached Miles and yeah, we talked about doing a 45 because I had started this 45 series with Stone's Throw. Right. And um, I remember I got a phone call from Quest Love. He just loved the Get Your Soul Together. And I, yeah, oh, I remember, cool. but I remember, yeah, like, but basically, I took the song and I asked if I could like do a version where it just starts with the drums for the part two, I think. And yeah, um, yeah, that was good for the DJs, you know. Totally. But 
yeah, that's how I met Questlove. Is he's like, well, I love that Breakster record, and oh, you know, he he hit me up, and he's like, I'm gonna be in San Francisco. Like, let's go record shopping together, and yeah, it's been like, how long has it been? Twenty, well, probably twenty three years since yeah. Breakster came out, right? Something like that. I mean, you guys were probably doing stuff before. Yeah, yeah. Before probably like ninety six, ninety seven, right? I think that's right. Or maybe ninety eight. I'm terrible with dates, but I think that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So That's I mean, wild. you guys were really one of the first non-hip-hop, you know, the yeah. uh, curveball left turns that that Stone's Throw did as a label. I mean, definitely as far as a full album, even though yeah. it was like it had hip-hop sensibility because the music you guys were playing was stuff that was hip -hop sampled race. by hip-hop artists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, I think one of the things people love about Stone's Throw is the left turns. It's like, um, I mean, you just really seem to follow what floats your boat at the moment, and I love that. Um, so it's really interesting to me how labels, how, how you stay afloat and balance out your musical tastes with trying to stay afloat financially and all that, because that's got to be a crazy yeah. constant moving target. You know, you're like, you're trying to release stuff that you're just feeling. Sometimes it takes off, sometimes it doesn't. How do you deal with that as a label head, Chris? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess I, I try not to overthink it. I, and there's, you know, a lot of the artists that I sign are, are people who haven't really, have never had anything out. Like this this guy Silas, who I, I just signed, we just put out a single, but he had no, no presence on Spotify. Um, very, very low amount of followers on Instagram. It was, it was really just, I just really liked the songs that I heard from him. And, yeah. you know, I mean, that there's, there's always, there's obviously all different uh, cases like we just signed Kate Renata for for an album and you know he's already an established artist but for for the most part um, I don't yeah I don't really have to worry too hard about something not doing well I guess um, I mean re really it's that that part is really up to the artist to a large extent you know and when I when I speak to artists and um, like Anderson Pack was one where right off the bat, you know, people just, but we, even with him, like when I, when I signed him, he was playing like, you know, like venues that were like 50 to hundred people or something. And, yeah. and we put out, uh, one thing of him singing live in the dungeon of Stone's Throw. The dungeon is like what we call our warehouse yep. and it, you know, it got millions of views on, on YouTube and then Dr. Dre just, just discovered him. Um, you know, and the rest was history with, with Anderson. But Anderson is someone where I just saw that, like, he has the talent and the drive. And right. and he loves performing, you know. And yeah. some artists I sign, they're very creative, but they, they don't care if they do shows. And, you know, there's different limitations. I mean, the Lions, you guys, it was hard for you to do shows outside of L.A. because you were like, I don't want to... I don't want the Lions is 13 people I'm not going to do a yeah. three person thing and that was like that was a noble thing of you you know to do and 
you, you know, you guys did a lot of great stuff. Um, I don't know how of, noble it was. I appreciate that, but I think it was just, yeah, it's like to get that sound, you just had to have all those people. And it was like, it's, there's no but point. But it's a group. Really, yeah. Yeah. It's a group thing. But it, it sounds the way it does yeah. because of all those people, you know. Exactly. Exactly. But it's hard to get. But it. yeah, I mean, every, every situation is different. And I think, um, you know, I, I just, I kind of have heart to heart talks with artists going into it like what you know what do you what do you want out of this what do you what are your what are your expectations what are your goals you know and how do we how do we achieve them yeah that's uh that's a great way to start start things out make sure everyone's on the same page because uh, it I mean, really does need or two yeah oh go ahead uh -huh. i was just go gonna ahead. say it really no, no, does no, no. have to be a uh, a balance of talent obviously you can see their talent but then the drive to take it somewhere too is equally as important and and look like as a label like i'll put something out even if it's only going to sell like a thousand or you know or stream only stream whatever yeah a few thousand that that's um you know we can still sustain as a label doing that and, and then also doing stuff that does very well and you know we put a lot of money behind things but it's just yeah it's just what what does the artist want I guess right right like Sudan Archives you know she we, we signed her and it's been kind of a, a slow build like right off the bat like she had a lot of fans yeah but um you know with every year it's just I was one of them by the way I like that right those records <laughs> cool. those EPs they were beautiful yeah and she's just been like such a joy to work with and she's always like had such a positive attitude and you know she's she's going on tour with um oh, i can't think of their name now but they're that australian group is really big and they're they're playing stadiums like oh. staple center and you know wow um so you know you just stick to your guns and and you just keep doing it and, and eventually people like come around right well, I think, you know, tell me, tell me your thoughts on just building your team. Obviously, the people who work with you and for you, a lot of them have been there a long time, like Jeff Jank and uh, you guys mm -hmm. have known each other a long time. What a, tell me about assembling your team and what, what it takes to run a label, you know, like what, what all the jobs are, what it takes, what are, what are the, the, the things that need to happen, you know? I think that's just an important thing for people to know all of the aspects that go into running a label making sure things are taken care of i mean a lot of yeah there's a lot of crossover and jobs but uh, you know we have we have a few well so there's like 20 people at stone's throw yeah and you know my gm jason mcguire he like he deals with all the day-to-day -day stuff i mean I, I i'm able to just be that guy that finds artists and signs them and you know works yeah. with them in the studio and right. more on the creative end I guess but you know we have project managers we have I think maybe four or five and because um, our roster is really large now and yeah. so we just kind of divvy up artists to different um, project managers and mm -hmm. you know some of the artists have oh, these hummingbirds are <laughs> flying around again some of the artists have managers and booking agents and you know 
all, all that and, and then some of them don't and, and we pick up the slack and, and we kind of act uh, as you know management for those until, until they find the, the, the right team I guess wow yeah um, yeah you know Jeff like he, he does the website he, he does he's in charge of finding like I mean if he if he's not doing album covers for artists then he's outsourcing it he has a you know a whole team of people that he works with and, yeah um but yeah i mean it, yeah it's kind of a, a case by case with with artists like who's involved with it and sure you know we, we have a team we have a small team in europe but a lot of that stuff is outsourced as well hmm. as far as distribution and we have a, a guy Koda who Japan. does Japan, and now he's doing like broader Asia for us. But Hold on. yeah, <laughs> got the spruce goose flying over right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a helicopter. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's an important thing too is distribution, and uh, you've got you've got all your project managers, you've got someone doing the day to day, you've got Jeff dealing with the art and so many other things. Talk mm -hmm. about distribution the studio. and how that works out. Yeah, and you've got the studio there too, which I want to talk yeah. about. Yeah, we have the studio, and then downstairs we also have like what we call the dungeon, and and that's like where we have all our. Or we, you know, we still sell physical vinyl. We still sell CDs, a lot more vinyl than CDs, um, and all of our merch. You know, our T-shirts and skateboards and hats and whatever. I just um, found my Ultimate Breaks and Beats uh, Stones Throw shirt. Oh, really? <laughs> my wife was cleaning out the garage. I was like, yes! <laughs> I, I wore it to death. It's 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 definitely worn, but I'll, I'll start rocking it again. <laughs> you should actually interview uh, Breakbeat Lou, who created the ultimate oh, break man. series yeah he's, i'd love he, to man yeah he did all the edits on it so right right um i chatted with him for a minute because he did funky soul i don't know a while back and, oh cool uh, yeah he was real cool yeah. But yeah, he's got stories to. he's been djing since i think 73 maybe so yeah it's crazy oh i'd love to man put me in touch please the bronx yeah yeah um yeah. So yeah, uh, distribution. We were talking about distribution. So how did you? How does that? Obviously, you've been dealing with these people for a while. But how did you first line up distribution? How does that? How does that work? How does a label go about finding the right distributor? The distribution. Well, I mean, that's really like probably more of a question for Jason because he he, okay. yeah, he handles all that stuff. But okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we yeah you know, we have we do have a digital marketing person, and we you know dealing directly with Spotify and Apple, and you know just all the streaming stuff is like yeah. I would say well I don't know exact percentages, but you know that that's a big part of it, and yeah. the vinyl distribution. Um, so David, uh, he's been with the company for over ten years. He works in the warehouse and he yep. wholesales he wholesales to a lot of cool. yeah david's awesome so he does he does our wholesale distribution and then um nick does our store orders you know because we we sell a lot through stonesthrow.com as well through our own yeah. website right a lot of people constantly buy from us so. yeah 
So, I mean, yeah, from that, I mean, uh, yeah, I remember when Questlove first came, he, he was, like, working on some Michael Jackson Circle de Soleil thing, and he's like, I need a studio last minute, like, can I come in? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I brought him in, and then I was like, let me give you a, a tour of the, the whole Stone's Throw. And he's yeah. like, you guys are like a real record label. I didn't know that. <laughs> like, this is crazy. I got to interview you for my podcast. I'm like, let's do it. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we it did. It is from the dungeon with live shows and then to the studio where yeah. I've gotten to be in. And, like, it's a lot of stuff happening over there. And then, obviously, Goldline Bar, too. It's like. The bar, yeah. Yeah. But Talk I mean, to yeah. Me about we, building out the label from just a label to, first of all, let's just break down and talk about the studio and the sense of community that it brings to the label. Well, the studio is, yeah, it's been, like, such a major addition. And that's something we've always yeah. wanted, but I didn't really know how to build a studio. I mean, even, like, the early Stone's Throw stuff, even, like, Quasimodo, for example, we did that. He, Madlib had a digital board, and he brought it over my house. And, yeah, my stuff, too, I was just using ADATs and just kind of EQing, and I didn't know the first thing about compression and like the only compression was really in mastering probably <laughs> right or or just from like the natural tape you know i mean mm -hmm. for for the stuff we did do on tape but yeah. you know like the the early days yeah we would go to a studio like cutmaster kurt i mentioned earlier like he did some of the quasimodo but then he was like i'll only do this if you don't put my name on it because it was recorded on cassette and like a hiss and like yeah. If if my name's on it, I'm people aren't gonna hire me anymore because it sounds too lo-fi or you know. But I always liked that lo-fi aesthetic, and I you know even like the stuff on Fondulum, it just it always sounded dirty and raw. Yeah. And I think yeah, that was like something that was missing in hip hop in the late '90s. I think you know it it had gotten like a little jiggy and yeah, a little like clean. But sure. um, but yeah, having having a studio. I mean, I, I found a guy Jake who is just really knows his stuff, and he really built that studio from scratch. I mean, it was just an empty room, and yeah, you know, he like did the double doors and just yeah. It's incredible, man. We did a lot of the writing for the the second Lions record there, and it was uh, oh wow because of you. Thank you for given us the space there man but yeah Shakespeare Alex Destin and Malik and I were in there writing songs to those rhythms at least four or five mm. times that's where, we wrote, that's where we wrote almost everything that's awesome yeah man well yeah I mean that is that that is like really helped the label and it's it's only been in like probably four years three or four years that we've had yeah. an internal studio yeah but we did have some pushback from some people on staff, like, is, no one's going to get work done because it's going to be too loud. And it's, it, it's totally fine, you know. Right? I think yeah. Sometimes people are afraid to change, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great. And then tell me about the idea behind starting the Goldline Bar. I want to hear about that and what that's been like for you. Yeah, the bar's been a lot of fun. You've DJed it, yeah? I, I was going to right before oh, you're COVID, going to you haven't yet that's COVID right hit, so okay well soon, we still hopefully. need to get you in there yeah I'd love yeah it, let, let us know when you can but right um yeah I mean I I basically uh I think it was 2011 I, I DJed well to go back further 
2007, I DJed seven nights in a row, and I called it seven seven seven. It was like right, all, I remember yeah. That. It was so it was July seventh, I guess, or yeah, seven days in a row, all seven inches, and then eight eight eight. Um, I think nine nine nine. We did nine different area codes, all music videos, and then. 10 10 10 we did a one 10 hour show and then 11 11 11 i was like okay we're gonna do um i don't want to dj at all this time i'm just gonna have it be all my records and we'll have 11 different djs oh yeah and, and then so we found a spot and we got a u-haul and we like it was going to be 1100 records and it ended up being more than that but um <laughs> you know i just sat back and watched the, the party while everybody else was djing with my records and i thought it was so fun <laughs> that is and so I wanted to do that in our in Stone's Throw. We we had a, you know, one of our buildings or oh, it's all in one building, but one of the rooms wasn't really being used. We were using it only for like music video shoots and private parties, but it was like, you know, like pretty much unused for for most of the time. And I'm like, what if we made this a bar? And we and I had seen in Japan that they have vinyl bars as well. Yeah. But the, the, the Japanese vinyl bars, it's usually like maybe, well, I don't know, maybe like three, two or three hundred records or five hundred records, and, it's, and they all belong to the owner of the bar, and then the owner is there all the time spinning the, spinning the records and, and yeah. serving the drinks. Dang. Um, but I was like, for, for mine, I want to just have it be DJ seven nights a week and they're all spinning for my records so yeah. there's 10,000 records in there and they're getting thrashed man I'm, like, <laughs> I'm starting to like rethink that idea now because I was like no they'll be fine you know but so it's like just I got his triplicates out there in the collection that's what I'm or? noticing like there's like a <laughs> There's a three feet high and rising in there that was that's oh. just totally demolished now, and I'm like, oh. I'm gonna go online and and get like a reissue of it instead. And yeah, the cheapest one I can find is a hundred dollars. I'm like, this is just not a sustainable business model. Like, <laughs> but it's it's a lot of fun and yeah. super fun, man. I just like I see everybody posting from there. I've seen Holloway and J Rock and everybody down there. And it's like, yeah, we met a lot of just people. Just the funnest like, vibe, man yeah no it's been it's been great so that's really cool man well so what do you feel like as you've been doing this for a long time running this label what are the biggest challenges you've had running stones throw mm, maybe things getting monotonous like mm. but it's not i mean i still like when I sign new artists, like I, I feel like I'm kind of living through them. I'm like, I, you know, when I see them excited about stuff, it excites me. And um, you know, the music at the end of the day, still like I'm, I'm still like really proud and thankful of like all the great music that I, I'm able to surround myself with. Yeah. So I, I would say like, you know, like just being able to DJ. Like I'm going to New York tomorrow, and you know that that, that kind of stuff breaks it up, so the so that it's not just just like doing the same thing every day, I guess. Right. And having the bar like has been like a new kind of hobby that pays bills as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I still I I still like. I I guess yeah, well, it's been a little hard. I you know I just 
recently my wife had a, our first baby. It's, it's my first time being a father, and that's been a, a challenge just to, in terms of, like, wanting to be home with the baby a lot and, you know, having to go into work and having, yeah. like, just different things to kind of just, yeah, be involved in, you know. I was just talking to a couple of my buddies who play with Noel and Fitz in the Tantrums. And, uh, oh, yeah. Almost that entire band all has, like, young children that they're and they're starting to tour again. Yeah. So that, that topic is another one where it's, like, artists who are doing stuff and traveling or running a label that have kids, man. That's such a – it's such a crazy yeah. balance trying to make it all happen and, and uh, happy. Yeah, yeah. Man. So – it's still early days for that, but um, yeah, it's, it's a new. Congratulations new to you guys, though, man! A new yeah. new baby is a wonderful thing. And she's a dancer. She's, oh yeah. She just turned my nine months, but yeah, she just. <laughs> I'll hold her up and I'll like, we'll play a song, and she's just like, going at it the whole time, and then. I like a few songs into it, like it gets kind of tiring, or you know, or I might I might not have time to do it anymore, and and then like we stop, and then we put her on the ground, and she just starts crying and crying. Uh, she just wants to keep dancing. Yeah. So, I you always see videos of that of like kids reacting to music, and it's just yeah. so selfless and beautiful. They're just like, I yeah. love this, you know. This yeah, is yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I saw the one of like the kid like. You know, he, they play Biggie Smalls, and he's really into it, and then they stop it, and he cries. And... <laughs> exactly. I've seen that one. Yeah. Put that back on. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's how well, she is about dancing. I wanted to touch on with you, um, just because I've seen you do your amazing video sets. I saw you do it at Dub Club one time and one other time, and I was just mm -hmm. wondering, what was your inspiration to undertake putting that kind of experience together, and what have been some memorable gigs, and what do you mm -hmm. love about DJing videos because it's just an amazing thing to watch. I think, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I'd been I, I first started DJing in clubs in the early '90s, so you know, it, it had been just probably 20 years of that already. And you know, I went from vinyl to Serato and, and 45s and just yeah just trying to do different things to to keep it interesting and the the video for me i noticed uh, i was like i would be like doing these shows with like mf doom and jay dilla and yeah. madlib and you know they're all they're all rhyming and and i'm up there on a stage and everyone's just staring at me you know it's not <laughs> yeah. it's not a dance party so i'm like well i, I got to give them something to look at i guess right and that's kind of where that started from Smart. but but in those days it was like there was no serato video yet and like you had to get two dvd players that that had pitch control and it was it was like ten thousand dollars in equipment alone Dang. and then most uh, most venues didn't really like have the stuff like you had to bring everything with you and you know it was it was really like it was challenging, but it was also like kind of new at that time, and and so it was giving people something they hadn't really seen. Yeah. And I and I still do. I, I do enjoy doing it, but I, I do it um, more if I'm on the bill with performers, I guess. You know. Sure. And I still, because sure. what I notice is like when I do that, people are just kind of staring at the screen, and there's not really, it's not like a party vibe as much, and I I, I really enjoy. Yeah. 
people dancing and smiling more and stuff. So uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of taken a break on the videos. I, I think I'm going back to vinyl and stuff, like kind of full circle. So the show keep in New it, York. Keep that, it interesting, man. Just like, uh, just yeah. like, just like uh, running the label, you got to keep it interesting. Well, I'm noticing now, like I'm, I'm noticing that there are like a lot of younger people who, who do have an interest in the, the music that I want to share, you know? So right. as long as there's, yeah. As long as there's st still people coming out and having fun, then that's what it's all about. That's true. Well, I wanted to talk to you. We were touching on um, social media early. Or, sorry, we were talking about streaming services early, earlier. And, um, you know, there's a great argument with all these streaming services um, for artists. And I wanted to get your take on that. You know, all the streaming services are pretty notoriously a little frugal with their splitting profits with artists and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that business model where you think it's going what you think the ups of it are what you think the downs of it are mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think of spotify and rhapsody and apple music and all that yeah i mean i i i support it all i i think it's um it's just it's a great way for people to to hear music and i you know i use i i use spotify and like a lot of the, the streaming stuff as well uh, yeah um i think i mean of course as a label you're gonna always want them to pay more but um yeah you know i think it's it's definitely um keeping us afloat more than you know, if it was just the streaming services that don't pay you anything. Um, yeah. I think uh, the challenge is a lot of times is getting your stuff playlisted and getting it heard, you know? Right. Whereas before, it might be like trying to get your stuff played on the radio. Right. Um, now, like, the, the streaming service uh, curator, playlist curator people for the official ones, those yeah. are like the, the key holders and... Right. You know, it, it's like, yeah, I don't know, but it's, it's, it, it is like, I, I think it's uh, a pretty like more level playing field, I think, you know, than it was in the the 80s and 90s, I guess. I mean, there's not as much payola and stuff like that. It's right. It is more about the talent, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, the argument, you know, is with such a low rate for all the streams that it's like, how are artists supposed to ever make money? I mean, even with like a million streams, I've seen people like, yeah, you know, like even I remember seeing Dylan and like Robbie Robertson, who are just like these huge songwriters whose songs get played all the time. But with streaming, mm -hmm. they're just like making, you know, point zero 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 one six or whatever right. it is of a penny per stream and yeah. it's like you get a million plays and you see maybe you know a thousand by i forget what the math is but it's not amazing you know i think so it's, it's like, around eight thousand you... for a million yeah but yeah i so know you... but you're seeing these things that are like they get billions of streams it's crazy like yeah and even on you but i mean youtube you know doesn't pay early i mean they, they pay so much lower than like a Spotify, but, um, they're all terrible in that respect, <laughs> in that respect there. But I mean, the promotion thing is absolutely true. The playlisting thing is huge for artists, but 
the amount that they're making music worth seems to be kind of sad to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, as a label, we split our profits 50-50 with our artists and, right. um, you know, we're transparent with our accounting. And Absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I feel like as a label, we're doing better now because we, we have the streaming income and, and the vinyl and, yeah. you know, the other income streams. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, um, I'm just really uh, trying to wrap my head around it because I think there are, there's positives and there's negatives about it. So I'm just, you see it firsthand, you know, I'm just uh, interested in your input in it. I mean, I think streaming kind of helped save our label in, in certain ways. How so? Because our stuff, so there's, there's certain artists where you buy their record and you hear it a few times and that's it, right? But yeah. but with streaming artists, you're getting played. You're getting paid every time it's played by somebody. So someone like like a mad villain has like millions of streams because yeah. people they play it over and over again. It's it's right. it's not necessarily like a hundred million people. It's like you know the same person playing it a bunch of yeah, times yeah yeah like 10 million people playing it 10 times or so you do think it evens out chris like you know if somebody obviously if somebody buys the mad villain record for whatever it is you know 14.99 or 20 20 bucks i don't know what it is but uh versus streaming it a bunch and a bunch of times you think it's like i've i've heard people say it does i i don't really yeah. know yeah 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 well uh I'm wondering, just on the artist side, I think something that many of us, if not all of us, have encountered is we're working with someone, writing, getting creative, and because uh, we're trusting people, we assume that the handshake deal is going to transfer over into the written deal. And people don't always make good on that. Get a little squirrely. Wondering if you've had any experience and, uh, you know, if you want to share any of that. I don't know. Um... I guess like early on for me it was like you know I would give a song for a compilation and I'd get a check for a thousand dollars and the check wouldn't clear and then I would try to contact the person over and over again they'd never you know return my calls and stuff so yeah um I mean I tell people like early on like it, you know if you're trying to build a name for yourself and maybe go into things like not strictly about the money as much but don't give away too much stuff for free so yeah i mean you got to get your foot in the door you know maybe like give a song here or give a song there until you kind of get your but i mean i guess there is is that risk that something could really take off i always wonder about that wake me up song with aloe black and oh yeah <laughs> and the electronic artist uh, who passed away right, like, right. I don't think any of them really thought it was going to be as big as it was and like how did how did the money pan out did everybody feel okay about it after you know were they still friends after right so yeah because that that did really well that song that was crazy really good for aloe so um i don't want to take too much more of your time chris you've been so gracious um 
But I wanted to ask you, as a record label owner and producer, um, what are your top five record labels and or producers? Mm. <laughs> Have you been asked that before? <laughs> I'm just, you're a record head, man. I want to know your top faves. I liked that Blue Note, you know, they've been around since 1939, I believe, and, and they never really had a... What I read or heard was that their first gold record was Nora Jones in the 2000s. Wow. And they put out all this great music for so many years, and it was just art, you know? The the, the packaging yeah. was art, artful, and the music was phenomenal. And then I, I think uh, the John Coltrane record from... 1959 it might have been blue train or one of them was went gold oh, yeah. second after nora jones wow um but yeah i mean i that's like i i would love to see stones throw still around you know as long as blue note uh, yeah so i guess been. that's the reason why a lot of those blue notes in good shape go for so much money because they didn't they weren't huge huge sellers and obviously people didn't always treat their records great but those original yeah. Luno pressings are worth a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Amazing art, great music. Um, I don't really... I mean, producers, it was just like... Yeah, there were a lot of hip-hop producers that I, I looked up to. A couple that I mentioned earlier were 45 King and Molly Mall, But, yeah. you know, obviously Pete Rock and Premier and Trevor Horn before that. Trevor Horn oh, yeah. uh, did Art of Noise and Malcolm McLaren and a lot of right. stuff. Um wasn't he the one who did that later Yes single too, Owner of a Lonely Heart? He did Owner of a Lonely Heart, and that had like the the Funk Incorporated coolest back sample in it. It was like <laughs> right. the drums, were, like and the stab. So crazy. Um, yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, he was groundbreaking. Trevor Horn. He did some amazing stuff. But the song Beatbox by Art of Noise was like that was like a classic, and it was it kind of changed music when it came out it was like a, just all the all the breakdance like yeah pop lock breakdance music was kind of came out after that song right who are the artists you're excited about right now do you have uh, I know you were mentioning people you just signed are there uh, yeah Silas specific... is one of them that I mentioned and Sudan's still doing their thing I mean there's yeah there's a lot there's this this group Teeth Agency that I signed there's I mean, what I'm starting called? to just, uh, Teeth Agency. Teeth Agency, okay. Yeah. I don't know how to describe their music. It's, they, uh, they have something out already, or you just signed it? Yeah, yeah, we've, we've put out some stuff with them. Oh, i got to check it this, out. This, this duo, The Steeples, that we put out recently, have a new record by them coming out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of hard to keep up with like yeah all the stuff that's going on so much good music out there chris yeah then i think more so than ever yeah and you know i'm i'm kind of known for like older music a lot of times but uh like the blind barber asked me to do a, a playlist a spotify playlist for them and I, and I just made it a point to just put only new music in it and Oh, yeah. Maybe only like a couple stones throw things, and everything else was from other labels. So, there, oh, wow. there's, there's definitely like a lot of new music that I like. But it's, yeah, when I get asked in this situation, I'm just like, uh, just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Well, we'll check for that. 
when I started, out. yeah. It's out oh. already, this playlist you did? Oh, yeah, yeah, they just did it. They, for, Father's, for Father's Day, they asked me to do a playlist oh. for them. Okay. But, um, Maybe you, can you send me a link to it, and I'll put it in the, when the podcast yeah. comes out. Sounds good. That's super cool. Yeah, well, man. Chris, Peanut Butter Wolf, thanks so much for being on the on the conduit, man. So appreciate your time and all yeah. your great stories and uh, expertise and uh, yeah, man. friendship well, above all, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you for you know for all the music you've contributed for Stomp's Throw and just yeah for being yourself. And I want to definitely get you on the bar soon. So let me know when yeah, you want man. to DJ. I will, man. I'll reach out for sure. All right. Thanks, well, take care, Chris. man. Have a good one. You too. Thanks, man. All right. Peace. Later. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew S Studio and DanUbeProductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the memories of Charles Edward Hicks Jr., aka Charisma, David Funkin' Klein, MC Miles, MF Doom, Jay Dilla, and the diabolical Bismarck. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power, Bill Coulter, and Alex Dazer. And last but not least, go check out Soul Picnic my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off.